Hello everyone and welcome to Chill Pill. My name is Emma Ives and I am the creator slash host of this fabulous podcast. I created this podcast since I love all things medicine. I love reading about it. I love talking about it. And because of COVID-19, my family is getting kind of sick and tired of hearing about it. So much so that I'm now in Ohio. Just kidding. I'm not a medical professional, so I'll never give you advice on the medical stuff. Please seek out your primary care physician for advice. I'll link all my sources in the description as well as mention them throughout the podcast. Okay, so that's not the actual reason I came back to Ohio, but it made for a good opener. I flew here about two weeks ago, and trust me, it was wild. I felt like I was in a post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie. There was almost no one in O'Hare Airport on a Monday afternoon during rush hour. I'd never been through security that fast. I even had my bag pulled because of my microphone, and made it to my gate with two hours to spare. Also, sorry for the leave of absence. I had virtual finals. Super weird experience. Hopefully, all my fellow students listen to the governor and stay at home so that I can have my senior year and also take the PCAT. So, like most of you, I've been at home to help flatten the curve and help stop the spread of COVID-19. And probably like most of you, I've been binge-watching a lot of TV, specifically Outlander. And after watching four seasons, I began to notice that Claire would prescribe something called willow bark tea for people's aches and pains. Side note, Claire is a doctor. If you haven't seen the show from the 1960s, it goes back in time to about the 1770s. She's referred to as a healer because women can't be doctors. Anyway, some background information for you. I was wondering, what is willow bark tea? And how does she know it will cure all aches and pains? And then I thought all the way back to Organic Chemistry Lab 1, where we synthesize acetylsalicylic acid via an acid-catalyzed acetyl substitution reaction between salicylic acid and acetic anhydride. That's a fancy way of saying we made aspirin. How do willow bark and aspirin connect? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today, as well as prove that Claire is always the smartest person in the room and is a really good doctor. According to Carol Watson, aspirin is one of those things that long before there ever worked clinical trials or any kind of scientific knowledge, people figured out, hey, I feel better when I take this substance. Using willow bark and other plants from the Spria genus has been seen in many cultures. There is not a country where it is not unknown or unavailable. The oldest recorded usage is about 4,000 years ago in Sumer. The Sumerians noted the willow plant as a pain treatment on clay tablets. Between 3,000 and 1,500 BCE in Egypt, there are medical texts referencing willow as an anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. Chinese and Greek civilizations reference willow bark in treatment more than 2,000 years ago. The Chinese also use poplar bark and willow shoots to treat rheumatic fever, colds, hemorrhages, and goiter. Even our old pal Hippocrates in 400 BCE discussed administering willow tea to women to ease pain in childbirth. It wasn't until about 1763 when the Royal Society published a report detailing the experiments of Edward Stone on dried willow bark being used to treat fevers. The Royal Society in London was the world's first learned society, and its mission is to recognize, promote, and support excellence in science and to encourage the development and use of science for the benefit of humanity. It was founded in the 1660s and serves as a means to communicate scientific findings and back scientific inquiry. Some of its most notable backings were the publishing of Isaac Newton's Principia, James Cook's Journey in the Pacific Ocean, the approval of Charles Babbage's Difference Engine, and the publishing of Chadwick's Detection of the Neutron. Famous fellows are all of the greats we all know them, Newton, Darwin, Einstein, and Hawking. And I got to visit them in London and hold an original copy of the Principia and the Origin of the Species. Their motto, Nullus in Verba, take nobody's word for it, encouraged moving forward scientific understanding through experiments and research. So when Society Fellow, 
Edward Stone came to the society with his five years of data, the society helped him publish it. Note, sometimes he's referred to as Edmund Stone due to a clerical era in society bookkeeping. Trust me, it gave me a lot of headaches trying to figure out if Edward Stone was even a fellow in the society. He came up with the idea supposedly while wandering through a field suffering from agues, which is a fever attributed to malaria, and he decided to eat some willow bark that happened to be in the field. He thought about how ancient societies often discussed using it, so he decided to dry the willow bark and give it to 50 persons. Without fail, it got rid of their fever symptoms, except with people who had been afflicted for long periods. With them, it just decreased their symptoms. He compared it to Peruvian chacona tree bark that most people use for similar ailments. Later in the 19th century, more chemical investigations into the healing properties of willow bark began. This was in part due to Napoleon's continental blockade on imports, which included Peruvian chacona tree bark. In 1828, Johann Buchner in Munich isolated a yellow substance from willow bark that he named salicillin. It is noted that Johann Buchner is surprisingly not related to Ernst Buchner of the Buchner funnel fame, which I was surprised to find out since that would have been a really weird coincidence. So we unfortunately cannot blame him for torturing OCHEM students. In 1829, Henry LaRue isolated a pure crystalline form of salicin and used it to treat rheumatism. Large-scale production of salicylic acid was initiated by the Hayden Chemical Company in Germany. It was used to treat headaches and fevers and other aches and pains. However, it had horrible side effects, including vomiting, nausea, and even coma. The aspirin we know today didn't come about until 1897. Around this time, we saw the emergence of modern pharmaceutical companies. I don't know how to correctly pronounce this name, so we're going to call them the precursor to the Bayer company we know today, was originally a dye manufacturing farm. They started to transition to pharmaceutical production. Most of the older pharmaceutical companies we know today either started as apothecaries or these dye factories, which I know sounds weird, but we learned about it in my vaccine history class. They wanted to develop a new form of salicylic acid that did not have these horrible side effects. Felix Hoffman, often cited as the discoverer of aspirin, sought to chemically change the structure of salicylic acid by modifying the hydroxyl group on the benzene ring. It was discovered later that this modification turned the molecule into a form the body could ingest. Afterwards, it would convert back into salicylic acid and deliver the desired therapeutic effect. And of course, there was some drama surrounding the compound. It was mostly due to pride and not scientific merit. Heinrich Dresser, who was responsible for the standardized testing of pharmaceutical agents, disagreed with Hoffman's supervisor and his approach to the drug. He did not want to support it. He wrote and published his own paper, which proved the effectiveness of aspirin compared to other salicylates. Which, if you disagree with someone, I don't know why you would write a paper agreeing with them. It is believed that him publishing the article was for him to get royalties since his contract with Bayer gave him a share of the profits for patentable compounds. Bayer patented acetylsalic acid under the name aspirin in 1899 and began its distribution. The first tablet appeared in 1900, which was for ease of use, and it became quickly popular amongst physicians. In 1915, it became available for public to use without a prescription, making it the first modern, synthetic, over-the-counter mass-market medicine. And then World War I happened. Many pharmaceutical companies had to come up with their own derivatives of acetylsalic acid as imports from Germany were blocked in allied countries. Bayer was afraid of losing its manufacturing of aspirin in the U.S. due to lack of phenol, so they set up a shell company to buy phenol and keep its plant running. This became known as the Great Phenol Plot, although not illegal when it was discovered it hurt Bayer's image in the U.S. 
Eventually, under the Trading with the Enemy Act, the government seized all of Bayer's holdings in the U.S. and auctioned off the plant and all of Bayer's American patents and trademarks, including the Bayer brand name and the Bayer Cross logo. They were sold to Sterling Products Incorporated, who sold them back to Bayer AG in 1994 for $1 billion. In 1920, with the patent on aspirin about to expire in the U.S., Sterling lost the rights to the name as it became the generic name for the public. Other companies sought to make their own derivatives of aspirin. In 1971, John Vane published research on aspirin's mechanism of action. He and Priscilla Piper observed substances produced during a severe reaction to aspirin. One of these substances was prostaglin. Prostaglin is involved in causing diverse effects in the body, including vasodilation, vasocontraction, and sending messages of pain and discomfort to the brain. Aspirin minimizes some of the effects of vasodilation, which led Vane to believe aspirin was inhibiting the synthesis of prostaglin. Vane received the Nobel Prize in 1882. Prostaglin synthesis is inhibited because aspirin binds selectively and irreversibly to the enzyme responsible for producing prostaglin, cyclooxygenase. This means aspirin will only bind to this enzyme and cannot be removed, unlike other common non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, such as ibuprofen. They also discovered the reason for one of the side effects. There are three kinds of cyclooxygenase enzymes. One inhibits prostaglin synthesis during pain responses, and another synthesizes prostaglin to protect the stomach lining. Aspirin affects both kinds, which is why it causes stomach irritation at high doses. In an effort to try to prevent these effects, pharma companies try to make more selective inhibitors, such as Celebrix, Vioxx, and Mobic. However, there have been a number of issues with these drugs, most notably Vioxx. Today, aspirin has many medical applications. Its common usage is for minor aches and pains, as well as a fever reducer. It is also used as a blood thinner for people at high risk of clots, stroke, and heart attack if taken in low doses long-term. The United States Preventative Services Task Force currently recommends daily low-dose aspirin use to prevent cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer in adults with the following. They're aged 50 to 59, have a 10% or higher risk of cardiovascular disease, who do not have a high risk of bleeding, are likely to live at least another 10 years, and are willing to take the dose for at least 10 years. As with all drugs, there are risks involved. Aspirin should not be taken by people who have a peptic ulcer, hemophilia, or any other bleeding disorder, an allergy to any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen, are at risk of gastrointestinal bleeding or hemorrhage stroke, who drink alcohol regularly, or who are undergoing surgical or dental treatment. There are also medications that should never be taken with aspirin, as they either make the medication less effective or can increase the risk for the patient. Anti-inflammatory painkillers, such as ibuprofen, increase the risk of stomach bleeding if taken in combination with aspirin. Aspirin can make it harder for the body to eliminate methotrexate, used in treatment of cancers and autoimmune conditions, resulting in high and potentially dangerous levels of methotrexate in the body. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, taken with aspirin can increase the risk of bleeding. If aspirin is taken with wafferin, an anticoagulant drug, or a blood thinner, it can reduce the drug's anticoagulant effects and increase the risk of bleeding. If you are undergoing surgery, it is generally good practice to make sure you tell your doctor if you're taking aspirin regularly, and this goes for any medication, including supplements. As discussed before, sometimes drugs can interact with each other and lessen their usefulness or increase risk. Recently, aspirin has been in the news for its relation to reducing risk of multiple cancers. A meta-analysis and systematic review found evidence of taking aspirin as little as once or twice a week could reduce the risk of half a dozen cancers, including stomach, liver, and pancreatic cancer. 
but aspirin use had no impact on reducing cancers of the head or neck. One of the investigators recommends consultation with a doctor as the results are based on an observational data and there are many factors that could affect the effectiveness of such treatment. Now, let's apply aspirin to COVID-19. The WHO warns against a popular home remedy that combines aspirin, lemon, and honey to treat the virus. While some home remedies may provide comfort and alleviate symptoms of COVID-19, there is no evidence that current medicine can prevent or cure the disease. The WHO does not recommend self-medication with any medicines, including antibiotics, as a prevention or cure for COVID-19. So, home remedies? Not going to work with COVID. Although it's no longer the most popular over-the-counter painkiller, aspirin has had a rich history in the realm of medicine. Makes you appreciate the field of pharmacy a little bit more. Also, the historical accuracy of Outlander. Claire must have really paid attention in med school. Remember, pandemics don't go away just because we live in a first world country and have modern medicine. It is going to take a lot more work and patience to get through this. Remember to wash your hands regularly and when you go out, cover your face. If you feel sick, stay at home, and if you need to go to the doctor, call ahead first. I would like to dedicate this episode to all the healthcare workers who are working all over the world on the front lines to stop the threats of disease. You guys are the real heroes. I'm not a medical professional, so please consult your primary care physician if you are intrigued by anything you heard today. I do all my own research, and my sources are linked in the description. So please give all those scientists your love. The intro music was done by Cooper Wood, and the artwork was done by me. My name is Emma Ives, and thanks for listening to Chill Pill.